0: It's a good day to be here. Why is it a good day, you may ask? Well, amongst other reasons, we get to talk about this today. Not me. Work. 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 I mean, okay, let's just pretend like I, I'm just now presenting this word again. We're gonna talk about this word. What's your real reaction? Oh shut up. You guys, you guys are lying. You're lying right now. First service did it right. They were just like, ugh. Like, really? Ugh. You really have to talk about that on a Sunday. This is my weekend. Don't bring work into it. We don't want to talk about work. Why do we hate work so much? Why do we hate work? Um, You know, if if someone were to ask you, you know, during the work week, you know, how's work going? You might say something like, oh, living the dream. Living the dream. It's almost never true, by the way. Someone says it, that's like a cry for help. Saying, please, this is horrible. I am not living the dream. But they say it anyway with a fake smile on their face. Living the dream. You know, you talk about work. It's like, oh, another day, another dollar. You know? Come on, we do it. Yeah. We do it, early so we think it. We're like, oh, back to the grind. You know, back to the grind. You know, one of the things about work, I looked at statistics about this, just 20% of people are passionate about their jobs. 20%. One in five. 20% are passionate about their jobs. That's kind of sad. The job satisfaction rates right around 50%. That means at least ha- about half of people don't absolutely hate their jobs. They, they tolerate them, you know? Uh, there's, a, there's a spectrum there, but I mean, still half of the people who are just like, yeah, work is sucks. Like work is just a drag. Work is horrible. It's like half the people. And I don't think this is just unique towards like non-Jesus people. I think Jesus people just having ran in Christian circles for a long time, like we struggle with this thing too. We look at work and we're like, oh, really? You know, case of the Mondays, got a case of the Mondays. And then you get to Friday, like TGIF, you know, thank God it's Friday. We're here living for the weekend. Yes. And when we hate work, I mean, that's what it ends up being, right? We we live for the the times in our life where we're not working. We're like, not work is better than work. So we're just going to live to not work. And so we're living for that next break. We're living for the lunch break. We're living for the the time we can punch out at the end of the day. We're living for the weekend. You know, and God bless America. We get those, uh, you know, Fridays off on occasion or a Monday off on occasion. You know, and so we're like, oh, three day weekend. We live for that next holiday, that next vacation, that next time where you can take some time off work. And, And it really leaves us like looking forward to retirement a lot, right? Which. It can be a good thing, but also it can be a bad thing if we're 30. We're like, that's the ways to go. We've got a ways to go before we can get there. And it just seems like this unobtainable goal, but it leaves us working for those times of not work. And, and I think about this, and I'm like, does it really have to be this way? Does work have to be such a drag? I mean, work feels like a curse. And uh, we actually, I, I read this book uh, this fall um, called Every Good Endeavor. By Timothy Keller about connecting your work with God's work. It blew my mind uh, when it came to work. And this is for someone that I have a relatively satisfying job. It's difficult um, and it's all encompassing and it's a lot of work. But I do I do get excited about. I do love what I do. Um, And sometimes, believe it or not, you're like, oh you're a pastor. It's easy to connect your work with God's work. And you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Sometimes I'm like, I'm like working on a sermon or something and someone like calls me. I'm like, oh gosh, I really have to deal with this person that needs help right now. Like, can I just write my sermon and like, then I'm convicted pretty quick. But still, it's like, it's not as, it's not as easy as you might think. Connecting your work with God's work. This book is phenomenal. Uh, who likes to read? See some hands, some hands. Laura just put her hand down. She did like to read. And then, hold on, hands again, hands again. Now keep your hand up if you don't really like your job. Okay. Well do you do you like your job? I do. Andy? Tammy, well, you want I'll take it? You, <laughs> <laughs> do you want the do you want to read this book? Okay, give this to Tammy then. All right. Enjoy. Job, you can check this out. We'll post it on social media too if you want to read this book. Uh, there it's a big book, uh relative for to the kind of the topic that it's about. Um, so we're gonna try to break this down in about three weeks, um, but you're gonna have to be a little creative because I can't touch on all your vocations and your walks of life and all that stuff, but really ask God to speak to you and how it applies to your life uh, in the midst of this. And so we look at work as this kind of like necessary evil sometimes, this cursed thing. Um, and, and it kind of leads us, even as Jesus people who kind of pretend like commands in scripture like this don't exist. When Paul talks about this a little bit, he says, work willingly. Work willingly at whatever you do. How many things that you do? All of them. All of them, right? Whatever you do. As if you were working for the Lord rather than for people. This is a powerful thing. You Bible scholars know who he's talking to in this picture or this verse. He's talking to, yeah, he's talking to the church in Colossae. But more specifically, he's talking to slaves or more accurately, in today's terms, would be like indentured servants. They're people that owed somebody something else, and so they dedicated their life to pay them back for the debt that they owe. He's talking to the people at the bottom, the people who don't have a lot of dignity, don't have a lot of purpose in their work, and he tells them, work willingly at whatever you do as if you were working for the Lord rather than the people. And that very clearly means that it extends to all of us all of us, that we should work willingly at whatever we do as if we were working for the Lord rather than for people. And you're like, well, maybe that's just a one-off and you're taking it out of context, Pastor, but hold on, let's see this. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, how many of the things? Whatever. All of them, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. We look at these things, we're like, is this possible? can I do my job to the glory of God? Can I work willingly? Does that have to be this drag? Because it feels like there's no purpose. There's no hope in any of it. How, how can we reconcile that? Is there, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything redeemable about work. Uh, so we're going to tackle these three questions during the series over the next couple weeks. Uh, is there purpose in work? Is there purpose? That's a big deal. Is there purpose? Can we find purpose in work? What went wrong with it? Because I always like to know, like, how, how did we get here from where it was supposed to be? So we'll, we'll tackle that. And how can our work be redeemed? We're going to be looking at that during the series. My hope for all of us is that we'd be able to connect our work with God's work. And some of us might be challenged to go do other work. Um, I'm not saying the grass is always greener. Uh, and I'll say some generalizations today that God can redeem all work. There's maybe some jobs that... Maybe some of us shouldn't be doing. I don't know. Um, but you have to figure that and wrestle that out yourself. Uh, but you might be stirred to go in another direction. I think that's okay too. But I want to pray over us as we get started today. Father, we look to you. We look to you for direction. God, this is a complicated subject, but we know to you it's simple. So we ask that you just make this clear to us today um, to follow you in the direction that you would lead in. Lord, knowing that uh, in you and in your will, there is uh, so much more peace, purpose, and joy and hope than we will find anywhere else. So I ask that you lead this group of people uh, to the direction of you, Lord, and to find you in our work. God, would you speak through me and have my words fall on receptive hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so the biggest issue with work, I think, that we face is this question. Well, what's, what's the point? What's the point of work? Why do I gotta do this grind? Why do I have to commit so much of my life to this thing that just seems pointless? What's the point? And when we look at work as a pointless endeavor, um, it ends up with us trying to just run out the clock. This is a run out the clock situation. If I can just make it through, it's this necessary evil in my life that I just have to do. I just have to grind it out. I just have to bear down and get through it. And if I can do that, everything will be fine. Of course, we end up desiring the weekend and the times when we're at not work, believing that not work is better than work. This is true if you're a Jesus person or not. This is true for all of us. Without purpose, work is a total drag. And so the thing that's missing in in this work, of course, is purpose. The reason why we're not passionate about our jobs is, is because we don't find purpose in it. I don't know if you noticed this, but everything in life seems cursed without purpose. Have you noticed that? If you ever get to somewhere and you're like, what's the point? you either leave or you're like, I just, you wrestle with it. If it's something that you have to face with the circumstance you're facing, you're like, uh, this is just horrible. This is senseless, right? We use this word all the, like senseless tragedy. It's a senseless circumstance. We're like, there's no purpose in it and work can feel that way. Everything though seems cursed without purpose. I, I watched this movie uh, in high school. It was one of those movies in high school that they made you watch that um, kind of just stuck with me. It's a movie called Life is Beautiful. You guys seen that movie? It's a phenomenal movie, made in the late 90s. It's an Italian film, so you had to read the subtitles, which was always the worst. Um, But this movie still just stuck with me because it was powerful. And it's about um, some Italian Jews uh, who were taken away uh, by train to a concentration camp in World War II. And uh, it was a husband and wife and a son. And uh, he was probably like five or seven years old or something like that. And the son and the father are separated from the mother. The mother dies fairly early on, if I remember right. And the son and the uh, father are together in the camp. And he, the father looks at this situation. And he's like, there's no purpose in a concentration camp. Like, there's no way there's purpose in a concentration camp. So what does he do? He's like, With, without purpose, my son is going to perish. And it's just going to be horrible. So what he does is he brings purpose to a concentration camp. What in the world? He convinces his son that this is all a big game. And that if he does enough of the right things, he'll earn points. And if he doesn't do enough of the wrong uh, things, he will earn points. And at the end of this, he'll win a tank. There'll be a great prize if he can get through this. So he's doing all the things that you did at a concentration camp and that were done to you, but he's doing it and making it through, believing this is all just some sort of big game. What a powerful image. And he goes through this and the kid just, he buys into it. And he's just like, yeah, I can do it. I can do all these things. I can go without food and I can eat this maggoty bread and I can do it because I have purpose in it. And he does it. And towards the end of this story is so powerful. Towards the end of the story, the allied forces are getting close and the Germans are kind of freaking out. And so they, they, they kind of put this last ditch effort to, uh, to, to kill a bunch of people and they ended up taking the dad. And before the dad is taken to be killed, uh, his, he tells his son, he's like, look, this is your last test. If you can make it through this, you win. He's like, you gotta sit in the sweat box for like 24 hours and you can't make a sound. And he does it. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I can't get my kids to sit quiet for five minutes. <laughs> and he does it to this kid, why? Because there's purpose in this. And the dad goes and dies and the son comes up after like 24 hours to see the allied forces coming in and redeeming them and bringing them back. And uh, what a powerful image. You know, everything without purpose seems like it's cursed, but with purpose, it can take even the most dire circumstances and bring some sort of joy and and reason and purpose to it. It's a powerful, powerful thing. When I think about it, uh, Thursday mornings, my kids, um, they have a rough go of it because Tuesday and Wednesday nights are late nights for us. Just a little bit later than normal. Um, but Thursdays are always after a couple nights of that. They're just not wanting to get up for school. They're dragging. They're like, "No, I don't want to be here. Don't wake me up, mom, dad. Like I don't want to do this." Um, and they're just like, "Oh, why do I have to go to school? This is all, and everything's horrible, right?" Um, you fast or rewind back to two months ago, like exactly two months ago. They didn't get enough sleep, and they woke up with smiles on their face. Why? Because it was Christmas, right? It was Christmas. There was purpose in their waking up. It changed everything. You know, and a few weeks before that, we had the opportunity to go to Mexico. And we had told them for months, like, this is what we're doing. We're going to wake up. You're only going to get about five hours of sleep, and we're going to wake up early. We're going to go to the airport. And so that night, they were all excited about it. We woke them up in the morning, and I've never seen them spring out of bed with so much joy. Than that, because they're like, they're expecting it. They know that there's purpose in this waking up early, and it makes something that's totally mundane and boring and horrible and makes it into something bearable, something even joyful. You're like, what? That's the power of purpose. I think without purpose sometimes we see, and especially in our, in our jobs, we see this point A where we're at, and then we see the point B, which is the ideal, and we just don't know how to get there, and a lot of times purpose kind of serves as this pathway to get us from the actual to the ideal Right? To where we want to be. But so often in our jobs, we look at them and we're like, we know there's this ideal out there, but it just seems completely unobtainable. And so we start going in one direction and we realize there's nothing there. So we, we draw back and then we go another direction and we draw back. and We go another direction and we draw back. and We end up just kind of spinning our wheels and not actually going anywhere. And, and, and w- without purpose, it kind of just feels like this big open field that we don't really know what direction to go in in order to get to somewhere that might make sense. When my dog was young, uh, he was about three years old, like prime dog years. He was like loving himself, loving life, pretty big on himself too, even though he's a tiny little dog. Um, We took him to the beach, uh, Sunset Beach there south of Astoria. And it was in the summer, the low tide, it's a big beach, like big flat beach with dunes on one side, you know, the marine layer on the other. And it was just kind of a beautiful day. And we let him out and he had never seen so much territory before like flat territory, and he was so excited. He was like running around in circles, and I'd never seen him run so fast. He was so happy, and all of a sudden, he picked a direction, and he just started running, and he didn't stop. He went like a half a mile. I'm like, dude, you're not gonna be able to make it back because, of course, he, he's a dog, and he, he's not a very smart dog even, and he's, not, he's like, he's not gonna make his way back to me. Why? Because the, the ocean's there, so he can't hear anything, and it's like the fog is there, and so he can't really see much, and he's just barely within eyesight. I feel like we're the same way. When we don't have purpose, it's like we go directions, but we don't actually know where they're leading. We end up again. We just, we just spin our wheels. And too many options kind of drives us crazy, and we fail to see the purpose in it. We need focus, and we need purpose in our lives. And again, work seems cursed without purpose. And I want to illustrate this further uh, with a story, one of my favorite uh, dudes from the Bible, my boy Dave um, David from 2 Samuel chapter 11. This guy uh, had killed Goliath, you know. And the king was after him, Saul, for a while. He was a, he was, David was to be the anointed, or he was the anointed future king. Saul was not about that, so he's hunting down David. Finally, David makes it to his rightful place. He's on, he's in his palace, and he's in his kingdom, he's in charge. Finally, he makes it to this place, and guess what he does? He kicks back. He relaxes. He's like, I've arrived. not work is the destination. I'd rather not work. So this is powerful. We're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. David, what are you doing? When kings normally go out to war, what are you supposed to be doing, David? You're supposed to be going out to war. This is your job. David sent uh, someone ahead in his place. And again, the author in twice in one verse makes the point that David was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. He was supposed to be out fighting. He had a job to do. And guess what? He's about to make a royal mess out of his situation because he's not walking in his purpose, in his work. So why was he not working? Probably because he felt like he owed it to himself. He would finally made it to the peak of you know, being a king and he's in the palace and he's feeling pretty good about himself. He's arrived, he's like, why not just kick back, retire early and just like David, we think that if we could just not work, we'll be happy. If we can just be in the place of not work, it'll satisfy our desires and we'll be in a good place. We see in uh, chapter, or verse 2, late one afternoon, after his midday rest. Must be rough, Dave, not working and taking a nice midday rest. David got out of bed, and he was walking along the roof of his palace. And he looked out over the city, and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. David, what are you up to? Like, I mean, come on. Kicking back relaxing without purpose and he's looking down and now he's up to no good, right? He looks down and I think this is, this is fascinating as I looked into this. Um, it's not like this lady was uh, just searching on Zillow and she's like, oh, it's palace adjacent with rooftop bath. Like I want this place, you know? It wasn't like that. Uh, it, the, in all likelihood, his inner circle lived close by the palace. These were his protectors. These were his people that lived close by. David should know he has no business looking at somebody else's wife. He has no business looking down and, and, and seeing this as something that he should, like, actually engage on. But he does anyway. And, in fact, it's likely David had these 37 mighty men, like his closest of his close. This is an inner circle, and he's looking down, knowing full well that this probably person is probably related to his mighty men. And yet, because he's not working, he's up to no good. He had lost his purpose in this. Verse 3 says, he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. And I love the detail here. It's like, wait, you probably know who this guy is, David. Daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Again, who was in all likelihood one of his 37 mighty men, the people closest to him. Yet David looks at the situation and has lost purpose. And like, what are you doing, David? Kicking back and relaxing, living the good life. He makes a royal mess of this whole thing. If you know the story, I'll, I'll walk you through it. What happens is what you expect to happen. They get pregnant. Um, she's married, right? So she, he brings back husband being like, hey, you know, like, let's make it look like it's yours. And he won't because he's like, not while my boys are dying out on the battlefield. I'm not doing that. So David's all ticked off. He sends a letter with Uriah, which is his own death sentence, giving it to the commander of the army saying, hey, when Uriah and everybody's fighting, you're gonna tell everybody to pull back, but you're not gonna tell Uriah about it. He's gonna die on accident, right? Hasn't killed. Then the baby dies. It's like this whole crazy mess. And David, of course, comes to God afterwards and, 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 and just bares his heart and like, I'm a total mess. And that's why we love David. But still, he made a mess, Out of this whole thing. Again, why? Because he looks at this, this situation and he's like, man, if not work is the solution, if I could just not work, I'll be happy. If I'm just not working, I can be productive. And instead, it's like, man, idle hands are the devil's playground. I don't think that's even in the Bible. But man, that is so true. It's like, what are you doing? You got all this free time on your hands. You think you're gonna be more productive? It's like, no. David, nothing good happens after midnight. Like, come on, what are you doing? David. Without purpose, bad stuff happens. When I look at the world right now, and my generation especially, with this mental health epidemic that we're facing. I mean, it's everywhere, it's rampant. It's not just uh, to, to millennials, but when I look at millennials and Gen Z, and again, I'm not making a political statement at all here, but one of the things that I think about this is the millennials were one of the first generations in the history of the world, really, that doesn't have to fight to survive. You don't have to work to survive. You don't have to. You should maybe, but you don't have to. And, and there's not a, maybe a, a more in, like God-given purpose in our lives than the, the to fight to survive, the fight to eat. Right? When you know that if you don't work today, that you're not going to eat, and you know what hunger feels like, you're like, well, I better work so that I can eat. And that's a great motivating factor. It's purpose, whether you like it or not. And I think it's great that technology has come to the place where we don't have to face that. But there are unintended consequences with uh, the, the technology advancements that we have. And so people are left with all this free time on their hands or all this free time on their minds to think, to think like never before. And we're like, well, it's a good thing to think, but yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, if you're laid in bed at 3 a.m., like, thinking about something, <laughs> you're like, what am I up for right now? It's like, that kind of thinking, that's not very productive. That's not very good. So we, we, we look at this, this, uh, uh, this life ahead of us, and we're like, if we could just be in this place of not work, we'd be happy. But we see that it actually has unintended consequences with it. In fact, for a long time, millennials were coined as being uh, lazy people. But quickly, we figured out that they're not actually lazy. They simply lacked purpose. And given purpose, millennials will lay down their lives for that purpose. So again, something that we're lacking so much in our culture, and our society, is purpose. And you may think, well, hey, I'm a Jesus person, so all I have to do is... um, you know, do that thing where you talk about loving God and loving others. The Greatest commandment, right? To love God and to love others. Like, yeah, if I do that, like, I'll be happy. And if I am active in my faith and I go share the gospel and I go tell people about Jesus, then I should be happy. Yet I still have to go to the stinking nine-to-five job and I hate it. And so it's like, even if I want to do those Jesus things, those Christian things that Pastor Timmy talks about all the time, it's like I can't because I got this job that takes so much of my brain space and takes so much of my life, and we separate the two. We're like, man, I I, I just have this necessary evil in my life that I wish I could just remove it. And, And our work seems so removed from our purpose, like this necessary evil when purpose or people are lost without purpose. And I want to tell you this morning that work was actually meant, a part of God's design to give us purpose. And what that means is that less work isn't the goal. That retirement isn't the goal. It's a a goal. It's something that you can certainly do. I'm not saying that you shouldn't retire. But laziness certainly is not the goal. There's not a better life in in, in just doing less and being lazy and letting someone else do the work. Uh, Purpose is not found, better life is not found in a lack of work. So like David, um, we see this, that when we live without purpose, we're actually not productive. When we live without purpose, we are, we're, we're not productive. And oftentimes we can be evil in that. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, I used to see this all the time. Uh, I would fear the summertime. Why? Because kids would have so much time on their hands over the summer that they get into trouble. Guess when kids aren't getting into trouble? when they have a full schedule of things to do, which, yeah, we can take it too far on that uh, that other end of the spectrum. But again, idle hands are the devil's playground. When we have all this time on our hands, especially with young people, we're like the dog on the beach that just picks a direction and goes. And like, that's not productive. That's not helpful. And so often kids, and not just kids, because we as adults do it, David was doing it, right? You get all this free time on your hands. You're like, this is it. This is where I should be. And you end up in somewhere that you never hoped you would end up, and you wouldn't worship or wish on your worst enemy. So, in light of this, how do we avoid the pitfalls of a purposeless life? Let's look at God's design for work. I think this is a powerful, powerful thing. I've been spending a lot of time in uh, the beginning of Genesis and the creation account lately, because I think it just uh, shows so much of the world in which God created it and intended it, to be uh, something that we so easily miss today because I feel like a lot of our striving as people is looking towards like, what were we made for? Like, how were we made to live? And there's so much truth that goes into God's design for people, and I I, I truly believe when we line up with God's design for our lives, it changes everything. There's so much purpose in that. So let's look at this, uh, the creation account in uh, Genesis chapter one, verse two. It says the earth was formless and empty, and the darkness hovered over, covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. It was empty, formless and empty, uninhabited, uncultivated. It was formless and void. There wasn't anything going on there, that then God, because it's in his nature, he began to create he began to create and build things. And he started making animals and, and light and dark and land and plants and trees. And, and it was like all this stuff. And he starts looking at it and he's like, oh, that's good. I don't know if it's like patting himself on the shoulder or what, like, oh, that's good. That's pretty cool, Matt. You see that giraffe? That thing's dope. This tree is beautiful. We've looked at animals and we've looked at trees and been like, that's awesome. God's just looking at it like, good. That's good. That's good. But it wasn't great. It wasn't like awesome yet. And when you get further on in his creation account, I guess in Genesis 128, we see this. God created people, created man and woman. And he says, look, then God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. The first command we have in scripture, to be fruitful and multiply. That's a fun one, right? Grow in strength. And in Numbers, what he's doing is like, I made you in my image. Now go make other image-bearing covenant partners with me. So there's an aspect of just creating life and then rearing and raising this life to be image-bearing covenant partners with God. And then he says, fill the earth. Fill the earth with these people and govern it. Govern it. Wow, it's an interesting thing to say. Rain, rain, rain over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along on the ground there's a, there's an aspect to managing or stewarding this i use this word a lot stewarding it's being in charge of it and, and tending to it uh there's an aspect of managing this to being fruitful and multiplying and then taking the things that you've now created and and rule over them but serve them in that you, there's there's a there's a just an aspect of again just being managerial and and providing for the needs of the people and building and all that stuff kind of goes in there. And, and perfection up until this point was not yet realized. Why? Because they had work to do, right? He gave them a job in light of all this. He's like, go do things with the things that I've created for you. Go do things. So what did it mean to, to, to watch over at that time? I meant to like tend to it. I don't know. I wasn't there and it doesn't say, but it could, it could have been something like pruning trees, And it's like, well, I only have two hands. I can carry two apples from point A to point B. Let's make like a basket so we can fit like 10 of these suckers in here because they're great. And then later on, it's like, this is a great crop of apples. Maybe we should like dry some of these so you figure out how you can like hang them up and dry these fruits because dried fruit is awesome. They had work to do, right? He assigned them things to do there's many facets of this tending the tending and, and, and stewarding that we see, but the kind of the, the the basics are that we are to harness the potential of the stuff and the people in the world and use it for our benefit and for the benefit of the whole, of the group of people. Harnessing this potential and using it for the benefit of the people in God's created world. And so after this command to like go and do, you have a job to do. You've been tasked with something. It's not just you're here, kick back, and you eat fruit or whatever. It's like you got something to do. And it's only then that God looked down and he said, it's very good. Most translations will read that today. Very good. In the Hebrew, which it was ri- originally written, it would just be good, good. You know, the good's so nice, he named it twice. It's like, oh, "I was good, good. It's good, good. No, this is very good. This is the good as I've intended it to be good. You have a job to do. You're not just that you're here. It's not enough that you're just here. You have work to do. See, work was part of God's good good. It was part of God's very good for the history of the world. And what we see is that when we align with God's design, when we align align with God's design, we find purpose in work. I mean, this is huge for us Jesus people. When we align with God's design, we begin to find purpose in our work. It's only then that we begin to see God redeem work, to buy it back, to make sense out of something that didn't make sense before. And this redemptive work, he's not new to this. Uh, It's kind of what he's in the business of. Uh, If you know the story the account of creation, eventually, you know, man and woman, they decide that... um, that their way is better. They eat of this fruit, which is the knowledge of good and evil, uh, which is really their their ability to, to, to have a right to define good and evil for themselves. To say, this is what we think is right and what is wrong. God, it doesn't really matter so much what you think, but it's what we think. And that's kind of been the plight of humans ever since, hasn't it? It's like, I'm good. Like, I know what's going on, God. I know you have a design for things, but I got a better one. We don't say that usually, but the way we live and the way we think and the way we talk kind of implies it. So it kind of began this downward spiral and then God started this redemptive plan through this guy named Abraham where he's like, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna bless all the world through you and, and people just grappled with us back and forth, back and forth. And finally, God sent his own son to the world to redeem it, to buy it back. To look at us in our pain and our brokenness and our striving to do good in his created world. He sent his son to live the perfect life and to die as the perfect sacrifice, a substitute for our sin. I mean, he's a great redeemer, this is what he does. He takes broken situations, he takes broken bodies, he takes broken minds and he restores them. He takes the the worst of circumstances, the situations and the marriages that we see that, it's like there's no hope in that. He's like, you turn to me and there's hope. He takes, uh, yet people are struggling. And he's like, I can restore that. He's like, look to me. I created all this, I can restore this. And if he can do that, he can certainly begin to redeem your work. Right? Because Jesus would go to the cross and then die for the sins of the world for those who are the most broken and those who are walking around in life, which is maybe more common in the United States. Like, I'm good. I'm not sure I really even need God. Like I'm good. And it says in Romans that we're all in the same, bo- the same boat. We're all, we've all sinned. It doesn't matter how good or how bad you are on paper. You don't define that. God defined that. Remember he designed it. He defined it. So he's like, you guys are all in the same boat, but there's hope, right? And that hope is Jesus. So Jesus died the sinner's death. He didn't stay dead. Why? Because he's God. He's life. So he came back and he was resurrected to show that not only does he care and love us, humanity, but he has the power over sin and death. And he is the great redeemer. So he bought us back that any of us that would turn to him could now have life through him. So God's in this redemptive work, right? Right? God's in this redemptive work. And if he can redeem humanity, if he can redeem us and our brokenness, he can certainly redeem your time. He can redeem your work. And for those of us who, return, who have turned to Jesus, what we're kind of tasked with is putting on these gospel glasses. They got crosses on them, so you know they're good. But what we do is we begin to see the world through the gospel lens, the good news of what Jesus did. And when we see things through this, it changes the way we see everything. It changes the way we see people, certainly. It changes the way that we even see our work. We begin to see that there can be purpose in work when we look to Jesus, that he had uh, a design for even the things that we look at and we're like, this is pointless and mundane. I'm not really contributing anything to society. It's definitely not benefiting anybody. And he's like, no, I can, it can. It can when you look to me. It's a powerful thing. I think this has huge implications for the way we approach work today. Massive implications for the way we approach work today. Because that means that that those of us who maybe are in construction, we go frame a house and we're like, how could this be to the glory of God? I think God cares about people having shelter because it's a big deal. I've slept outside before. I'd rather not. Right? So it's a big deal. I think he looks down at something like that and framing a house. It's like, no, you're doing it. You can do it to the glory of God. Why? Because it matters in his kingdom that people aren't cold. It should matter to us. If you're wiring a house, it's like, I love electricity. I've gone without electricity before. It's no fun. Right? Electricity can be a very good thing. It's like if you're wiring a house and you're like, how can I possibly do this for the glory of God? You can find hope. You can find purpose in that god can begin to redeem that you can do that to the glory of god you can cut hair to the glory of god why because i love having my hair cut i like the way it looks afterwards you can do that to the glory of god it makes me happy to not have super long hair hair cutting can be done to the glory of god that's ai i mean that's a cool thing you can sweep a street i don't know if you got any street sweepers in here i love that i hate it when rocks kick up and break my windshield and I would much rather have a a clean street. You can do that, you can uh, clean streets to the glory of God. You can wash dishes to the glory of God. Why, because clean dishes matter. Dirty dishes make you sick, and they look gross. You can clean dishes to the glory of God. You can certainly work in the hospitality and service industries to the glory of God. Why, because you're serving people, people made in the image of God, and that matters. It's not just for ministry workers. Sometimes we get this idea, it's like, oh, we'll just, you know, people that are doing pastors and missionaries, they're the ones doing it and they're doing a great work and that's fine. But it's not just about them. We can do all things, most all things in our vocations to the glory of God. God cares about the simple and mundane things that we look at that we're like, that's insignificant. He cares about those things. I mean, that's huge. We can do these things in our jobs to the glory of God. Of God. So, what would it look like to allow God to redeem your work? What would it look like? To do everything to the glory of God, just as Paul commanded. What would that look like? I think about parenting. That's one of the things that kind of left out a little bit this morning, not intentionally. Parenting matters, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Raising uh, image bearing covenant partners with God, like that is a big deal. Never minimize that or deplete that. You're spending a lot of time on that. And when you see it from the lens of the gospel, right, you're like, I'm raising this child made in the image of God to know him and to be a functioning, contributing member of society. Like, that matters. That matters so much. You can find purpose in that when it comes to your job. Again, realizing that he cares about the minuscule, mundane, insignificant things that we see with our own eyes and we can align, our, uh, align with his design and he can begin to redeem our work, then we can build, serve, grow to the glory of God in what, whatever we're doing. That's huge. In school, too, if we look at school like I did in middle school and high school, I'm like, what in the world is the point here? It's like education matters. You should learn, you should grow. You can do that to the glory of God. It could change your perspective. You could find purpose in that and it won't feel like such a drag anymore. You could do it to the glory of God. I want to pray for us. And of course, as always, we have the prayer room in the back. If you need prayer for anything today, we'd have people that would love to stand with you, whether it has to do with work or otherwise. We'd love to pray with you. Father, thank you for this group of people. God, I ask that you'd speak to everybody in this room right now. Tell us the areas in our life that we need to align with you. God, help us to find purpose in what seems insignificant, what seems pointless. Help us to find purpose in our work, God. Would you begin to reveal to us what it looks like to do everything as if unto you, to work willingly at all we do, to do things to the glory of God. God, forgive us for looking at these gifts of jobs, no matter how pointless we think they are, Uh, for making them what you didn't intend them to be. God, we ask that you would come and redeem our time. You would redeem our work for your glory and align our hearts with your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.